Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. Coming up on this week's show, we're teaching you how to save differently with a new app that encourages you to get rich slow. We meet one woman who's... PhD on 70s feminism is teaching us how to be truly radical and Mika Simmons host of the Happy Vagina podcast is here with us to talk about having a happy vagina. First of all though it's Camilla Thurlow the Love Island star that got me addicted to the show and helped a whole generation of men understand that feminism is for everybody. Some of you who've listened to this show for a while might know I'm a bit of a Love Island fan and I became a Love Island fan after hearing an altercation between my next guest and her supposed beau on the show. You're a feminist, aren't you? <laughs> Shouldn't we all be feminists? Surely you believe in equality. Oh, I believe in equality, but I feel like feminism believes in almost like inequality. Absolutely not. I just feel like so many people, men and women, have struggled to move the feminist movement forward and explain that it is about achieving equality, regardless of gender. So to me, I feel extremely strongly about defending that. Yes, Camilla Thurlow, we feel extremely strongly about it here on Badass Women's Hour too, and we're so delighted to have you with us. Hi, Camilla. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, now, you are you started, I guess, your career in the media on Love Island, but you have since gone on to do literally a documentary about what Camilla did next and do incredible work with refugees here in the UK. But the thing that I found most interesting is that when we think of Love Island contestants, we don't think of them as people who are originally bomb disposal experts. How did you get into that line of work? Um. So I I joined a charity called the Halo Trust um, back when I was 23. Um, they are a huge charity in Scotland and then they work globally. And so I had grown up kind of knowing about them. Um, and they go to places that have experienced conflict and remove explosive remnants of war that still pose a risk to civilians. Um, and it was always something I wanted to work in, but I just... I saw the people who worked for them um, and it was sort of predominantly male-dominated, um, ex-military, um, and I just never had the opportunity to do it, but I was desperate to do it. It seemed to be um, such a tangible way to help people. Um, and so I got sort of got to 23 and I applied and they very, very kindly offered me a job. Um, so that's how I started out. And then once I was in, it was just 
such an incredible experience. Um, and then I decided I'd like to be in the more of the operational side. So I did disposal training. I mean, it's an amazing story. And I think it really sums up something that you feel has been um, a theme throughout your career, which is sort of not being quite the right type or quite what people would expect for the situation you're in. Can you tell us a little bit about how that shows up for you? Yeah, I think, I mean, the interesting thing for me was that for such a long time in my life, I did do everything that was expected of me. Um, so through school and sort of my later teens, I was on this very straight path. You know, I, it wasn't like I was destined to, to go into these arenas that were different. Um, I was always very much on the on this kind of path that was very straightforward, laid out in front of me. Um, and then I, I had this car accident when I was 18. And I that was, to be honest, my first real experience of realising that the world is not straightforward. Mm. Um, and that it's important to kind of strip back some of those expectations because the things that seem so solid, um, sort of the socio-political um, spaces that we fit into or the expectations we receive from maybe the people around us or even from social media, they're not actually as real as they appear. And if you take them all away, what are you left with? And so it became more important to me to try and kind of fulfill what I wanted internally than to succeed in an external way. That being said, I, I still found that tricky because I am a people pleaser. So it was always a balance. But that was kind of, it was that fearfulness of not living life to the full that, that um, kind of pushed me forward in a way. It's really interesting that you say that um, we have expectations put upon us by social media. So I decided at the beginning of August I was going to take a social media break for the entire of August and just turn off my Instagram, turn off my Twitter, turn off my Facebook, not look at any of it. And the thing that I noticed, I would say within about 48 hours, was how much space I had to think about what I actually wanted to do yeah. versus what other people were doing and I thought I should be doing too. How do Absolutely. you manage that? Um, I mean, I'm so impressed with you taking a full break <laughs> from it because that is sometimes the only way to do it. And definitely I've had to take sort of breaks um, from social media. And, and that can be a really great thing. The other thing that sort of I've realised maybe in the past three years, because I had such an abrupt change in my social media interactions mm -hmm. in that after Love Island the number of follow followers I had went from, you know, like 60 to, <laughs> to more than that. Um, I found that when I didn't have a real sense of self or what I wanted to do or a sense of direction, that was when my interactions online became more difficult because I was very influenced by what people were saying. So if someone told me I was doing things wrong, I'd find that really upsetting. If someone said they were disappointed me, in me, I would carry a lot of shame with that. I wasn't very sure of myself. Whereas in the last three years now, you know, I've got to a different place in my life and I've worked very hard to try and kind of understand myself, which is partly why the book has come at this time. But it's also meant that when I'm in that online world, I have a better sense of myself in the real world. And it makes that space you know, a slightly easier place to be in. It's still incredibly complicated, though, and that's why there's kind of those two juxtaposing chapters in the book where I talk about the difficulties of social media and then, of course, how it can sometimes be a platform for good. 
you talk about being a people pleaser there. I think it's I think that's something that a lot of us, but particularly women in particular, seem feel that we sometimes suffer from that we're so busy pleasing other people we forget to actually think about what we want and who we are. Um, and in the clip that I played at the start of this interview, we hear you, uh, as I said, it was my sort of heroine moment on Love Island where you tell Johnny about we sh- the idea that we should all be feminists. And he challenges it and says, well, that's not what I believe. This is not how I feel about it. How do you deal now, not just with when people challenge your beliefs around feminism, but maybe when they challenge your beliefs around refugees or how uh, our world behaves in a socioeconomic manner? How do you stay strong without getting completely lost in that argument? Uh, such a good question. And I, I, to be honest, I find that really hard to deal with. I, I think the most important thing for me is when I feel like I really, I, I know about a cause and I know I, what I believe is so important, I can, in a way, that's when I can stick to what I'm saying. But it doesn't mean that I don't go away afterwards and feel upset about the confrontation or feel concerned about whether I did the cause justice. Um, So I think it is that thing that when you are a people pleaser, first and foremost, that that having to have that kind of confrontation can be challenging. Um, But also we'll often carry a lot of the negative emotions around that type of discussion long after it's finished and gone I think I just have to like now I've had to make peace with that that I'll never feel entirely confident in those spaces but that doesn't mean I shouldn't speak up Um, and uh, as much as it can bring a lot of fearfulness um, normally that means that you have you have stuck your neck out when you needed to do it Um, and so often the the kind of turmoil it can bring about internally is just showing that you did try, you did do something. And so you have to recognize that as much as it's hard to carry, it's a good thing to be doing. Um, But I will completely admit that I, you know, I go away and I think about things a lot. And if people haven't taken kindly to what I've said, I, you know, I do struggle with it, but it's just trying to keep focused on, on, on saying the right thing and trying to do the right thing when you can, I guess. You are, um, you're pregnant at the moment. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I think one of the areas where women feel exactly this a lot, where they feel like, oh God, I've tried to do the right thing and I'm, I'm trying to get it right, is around motherhood. You know, it yeah. is around that sort of maternal guilt that I almost don't like to talk about because I feel like that means that it's an absolute fact that it has to happen as opposed to something we can say no to um but how do you think how do you want to I guess instill what you've learned into your child what are the main lessons you want them to grow up with I think the main the main thing I want my child to grow up with is an understanding that the world is not this neat place we've tried to make it. You know, we've tried to sand down all the rough edges. We've tried to fit it into this two-dimensional online space. And that means that we've created a world that none of us can fit into because we're all flawed, we're all nuanced, we're all contradictory, and we all change over time. And so by creating a perfect world, we've made it an incredibly difficult one for us to actually live in and feel happy in. And that's the main thing that I would want 
my child to grow up knowing that happiness doesn't come from a perfect world. It comes from a place, from a world where you're allowed to be yourself. Um, and that sense of belonging in, in this world shouldn't be about fitting in and being typecast and stereotyped. It should be about you having this opportunity through your life to get to know yourself. I think that's so wise. And it actually, it makes me wonder, you know, for you, someone who, if we were to take you absolutely on surface value, could be, you could be living life where you're like, I'm going to live very, very comfortably in my lane. You know, my life is perfectly nice. I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to challenge myself. I'm not going to put myself in situations where it feels difficult. But I wonder, does it actually, do you in a strange way almost sometimes feel more comfortable when you do put yourself in situations where you are challenged or where you have to be in uncomfortable situations or deal with people who are living much more uncomfortable lives because it's a reminder that you don't have to be what society tells you you should be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there in that actually being in a position of comfort felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and quite tricky and usually made me end up feeling relatively miserable. I mean, the other side of that is actually I've experienced anxiety throughout my life. And so I can create discomfort in relatively comfortable situations anyway. And so being so uncomfortable all the time, it was kind of like, well, if I'm going to feel like this, I, I might as well use that and channel that and make it into something that gives me the space in my life to grow and develop and of course that came with a lot of failure and a lot of you know loneliness and so many other difficulties but it also brought so much to my life and, and you know just sometimes it's good to have that friction I agree um can I just finally there's a lot in the news at the moment around the refugee crisis around people coming to the UK in boats across the channel and I think there has been you know a lot of focus on how do we as the UK control this how do we sort out this problem and you have done a lot of work with the refugee community do a lot of work with refugee charities what would you like people to understand about those people choosing to get in those boats and come across here to the UK I just desperately want people to understand that these are people exactly the same as you and I in the most desperate of circumstances. And I am so, it saddens me so much to see the rhetoric around this um, where terms are used that suggest that people are coming here for opportunities. All they are, like people who have to leave their homes to survive, they deserve a safe space. And like we should be doing everything we possibly can to provide that. Um, because in another time, another place, it could be us in those desperate circumstances, trying to keep our children alive, trying to keep ourselves alive, just trying to survive. Um, and I think it's so important that people understand the trauma that people go through when they have to flee their homes, that the, it's the most difficult decision that nobody wants to leave the place that they love and call home to have to travel, take an unbelievably terrifying journey to an unknown place just to be safe. That's not a choice anyone should ever have to make. But if they do have to make it, we should then step up and be the ones who understand that and welcome them and help them. 
Um, and it's a, it that should be a privilege on our side to do that. You know, to be able to help someone in that situation, we should feel that that is something we would like to do. Um, so yeah, I'm just I'm just deeply saddened to see the way it's been framed, and some of the people who are speaking about it um, and using terms that just dehumanise the people involved. And it's it's an utter tragedy. Um, and so yeah, I just I beg of people to try and read, you know, when they read the information, think about what you would do if you were in that situation yourself. Camilla, thank you so much for joining me. Camilla Thurlow there, um, as I like to say, the original Love Island feminist. Her new book, Not the Type, is out now. Uh, Want to read all about her story from bomb disposals to Love Island to humanitarian work. It is a great lesson in the resilience and I would say not giving up mm, about other people's opinions that we all need it's out now this is the badass women's hour podcast that was Camilla Thurlow talking about her new book self-esteem and managing social media next up we're meeting the founder of the cashmere app who's going to teach us how to save differently there's been a lot of chat on social media the last few months around this buy it now culture, the rise of Klarna and other buy now, pay later apps allowing you to buy exactly what you want when you want it and worry about the money at a later date. Well, our next guest says, actually, we should be thinking about it differently. We should be hashtag get rich slow. That is from Yorena Okanukwa, founder of the Kashmir app. Hi, Yorena. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, So, Tell us a little bit about, first of all, the ethos behind Kashmir, because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, sure. So um, so Kashmir is a savings app that helps aspirational female consumers save towards and buy their favorite luxury products like without having to reduce the living standards or go into debt or, you know, rubber bank. Um, so the idea comes around, you know, so wanting to save up for something rather than impulsively splurging on an item that you just saw like on Instagram or on Twitter or whatever. Um, so we've I've been I've been kind of focused a lot on like sustainable consumption and conscious consumption. Um, so that's kind of like what we're focused on and um, really at Kashmir. I was fascinated by this because I feel so much of our money culture in the last few years has been about how can you have the stuff that you want really really quickly. And yeah. you are challenging that. Where did this Where did this need to challenge that come from for you? Um, yeah, so it was kind of, um, I came up with the idea a few years ago, like about three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I was out with my friends. Um, we were at Harrods and I saw these pair of shoes that I just like instantly fell in love with. Mm-hmm. And I tried it on and it was perfect. And I saw the price and I was like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> these shoes are about 600 pounds. And I'm sure everyone can relate to that. <laughs> and even though I kind of like, I kind of had the money and I could have used my credit card to pay for it. But I just felt that guilt of like impulsively spending that sort of money on a pair of shoes that I hadn't budgeted for. So I didn't buy them. And then later on, I was thinking to myself that if I had like a special like stash of cash where I was like putting money away each month towards like treating myself in the future, then I wouldn't have felt that guilt. And that's where the initial idea came about. Um, and then I started to do more research about how young people were currently, um, you know, like um, sort of like funding their like luxury products and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And the research was actually like ridiculous because, like you said, like you know, buy now, pay later is like a huge thing now. There's loads of research to show that young people are spending about 
400 pounds a month trying to like imitate their favorite Instagram stars mm. and seven in 10 of them are going into debt as a result. Mm. And I've seen stories of people going to like 30,000 pounds worth of debt meanwhile they're on a 25k salary just to like, you know, have that whole Instagram lifestyle. And obviously it's not sustainable at all. And it's a shame that like, there isn't that many people really challenging like these like credit schemes because they're making like credit and debt seem so fun and cool and like yeah. yes you know don't think about your bank account just you know just spend 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 and it's it's crazy because especially young people like we might not realize you know the effect that not being able to manage this type of debt can have in the future like when you're trying to get a mortgage and mm-hmm. so on like I've heard that like stories that apparently like banks start to look at. Um, when they're accepting you for a mortgage, they start to look at buy now, pay later if you're using these sort of schemes and then, they're, then you're more likely to be rejected. Mm-hmm. So, but you're not told this um, you know, while you're like, you know, spending so much money on all these like uh, online websites. So yeah, so that's kind of like what we're trying to do in Cashmere, like really sort of change that narrative and getting people to be more conscious and um, more sustainable about how they're like spending on their lifestyle. I was absolutely shocked by the stat that you shared there, which was that we're spending around £400 a month just living up to our Instagram lifestyle visions. Yeah. I mean, you said that and I was horrified. And then I thought about it and I thought, I know that I have seen an outfit on Instagram and thought, oh, I love that. I'm going to buy it and just instantly bought it. And social media makes that so easy for us. It tracks, you know, it knows that we spent a long time looking at a particular outfit and then it very helpfully serves us an advert for that exact same outfit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Do you think tech as an industry needs to be more responsible around how it encourages our spending habits? Yeah, I think I definitely think there's a lot of um, responsibility in that. Um, but I just feel like a lot of people just don't care. Like, there's a lot of short-term thinking with, with um, you know, with some some tech. So in terms of like, we just want to make a lot of money and we don't care about what the repercussions are in the future. Um, and it's like, do, do we not learn the lessons from before? Like we saw what happened with the, you know, with the 2008 credit crunch where yeah. people were being given like mortgages that they couldn't afford, and then that led to you know, the the credit crunch. And it's like, we're sort of repeating that again, where we're just, there's so much easy access to consumer debt that a lot of people can't afford. Um, but like, for some reason, I guess with human beings, we just never learn. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely a huge responsibility for like big tech companies to actually sit down and think that like, is this the best way to go about doing this? Um, have you always been responsible with money because I'm listening to you now and you sound very sorted you're like no I want long-term options I want to save for the lovely stuff I like and I am you're if you're a saver I'm a natural splurger so if I'd been trying on those 600 pound shoes in Harrods I would have been out the door with them before you could say (laughs) oh look there's your credit card bill Uh, (laughs) are you a natural saver would you say um, and yeah, I, I, I have been like saving since I you know, got my first job at the age of 17. Um, you know, like I used to do like babysitting and so on when I was, when I was a teenager. So and I always tried to save um, whatever I could. So yeah. like, yeah, so from a very young age, my parents have kind of like always instilled that whole like, if you want something, you're going to have to save up for it. <laughs> not giving you any money or anything like that. So, um, and yeah, so even with, even with my siblings, like when we were younger, we did paper rounds, like at the age of 13. And, you know, we just always save that money. But obviously, I mean, I do like to spend, like, I am, like, I love luxury <laughs> myself. So uh, that's why I like, let me find a good way, like a responsible way to, you know, at least save and spend at the same time. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I do try and be good with my money as much as I can. 
Um, what advice would you give somebody who has perhaps been on a bit of a spending spree for the last mm, couple of decades and is now <laughs> wanting to become a more responsible shopper? Where where can we start? Um, well, they should sign up the cashmere. <laughs> um, but I, I, what I always say to you is like, just start from somewhere. Like, even if your family are really hard to save, even if you can try and save like, I don't know, like fifty pound every month, a hundred pound every month, and set a goal towards what you're um, saving for. Because the problem is a lot of times when people save money, they don't actually have a specific goal in mind, which means that it's harder for them to actually want to keep up with that yeah. goal and hit it. So once you have maybe like a short-term goal, let's say it's like a three and four-month goal, like, okay, I'm going to save £100 every month for four months, and then I'm going to like, when I hit that goal, I'm going to treat myself to whatever it is. That sort of feeling when once you've hit that goal and like you feel like, yes, I can achieve this. And then once you're able to do that, then you feel like, okay, cool. I know that I, I have the discipline to save up you know, this amount of money for four months. Maybe yeah. I'm going to try £100 a month for like, I don't know, for a year and you know, try and save towards a house, like a mortgage or whatever. Yeah. So I would tell people to try and start small because sometimes when you try and start too big, it's like too daunting, like it feels impossible, especially if you're like, you know, trying to buy a house where it's like impossible yeah. now to buy a house as a young person. Um, but yeah, so try and start with smaller goals and then you start to see like, that you you become a lot more disciplined um, before you start to tackle the bigger goals. I think that's really interesting because I definitely have noticed for me when I'm saving, if I've got sort of, uh, you know, 100, 200 pounds in my saving account, that will come out of my saving account very quickly to go on something. <laughs> but once it gets yeah. over kind of 500, 1000, then I'm like, oh, oh, well, now I've got quite a bit of money in there. So I'm, I'm going to yeah. keep adding to it. And it, there's a sort of yeah. a, a switch flicks where I go, okay, now I don't want to be so reckless with this because I have it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, do you think that we need to not just change our attitude when it comes to money, but actually change our attitude when it comes to purchasing? So particularly, I think, in the last few year, few months with coronavirus, we've all become much more aware of do I actually need that Friday night dress? Do I actually want to go to that bar? We've suddenly had this period of time where we've sort of been enforced into less spending and yeah. we've become a little bit more reluctant to go back to the levels that we were at before. I think that this might be the moment when we see a change in our spending habits towards a more sustainable approach. Do you think that's likely or do you think we are going to quickly jump back in to spend it as fast as we get it <laughs> yeah I, I definitely think like now there's it, been a shift towards a more conscious consumption especially because now you know things are very uncertain a lot of people mm -hmm. are starting to leave their jobs and so on so like for people who still have their jobs like oh you know like I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow I could be the one to lose my job you know the next day so like I feel like a lot of people are starting to be a bit more mindful of how they spend their money. I mean, it's not like an immediate shift. I think it's more like a slow, gradual shift. Mm. But um, I do think, like, you know, especially now that with, like, over the past, like, couple of months, like, with Kashmir, like, we've seen a lot of, like, um, traction within, like, in terms of, like, our growth and people starting to, like, use our platform more frequently uh, because they, people are starting to realise that, like, maybe I shouldn't just spend, spend, spend and splurge yeah. on items that I don't need and rather just save for the things I actually do want. Because one of the interesting things about, the, one of the, uh, the interesting interesting things that we've seen is that with people using Kashmir, like they, because they're spending about like, you know, five, six months saving, for, saving towards an item, mm. they 
they actually buy the item and keep it. Whereas, like, so we so far we've had zero percent returns, and normally with like e-commerce, it's like the average like return rate is twenty five percent because wow, a lot of people buy things that they see and and then they realize, oh, actually, I already need it and then they return yeah. it. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of like what we're really pushing for, and we're already seeing that with the way people are using our platform, and hopefully, it will continue that way. I mean, I think that actually speaks for itself, doesn't it? When we give ourselves the time to really think about whether or not we want something we know if we do we don't send it back we're not making instant purchases and regretting it there is no buyer's remorse here I mean I think it sounds like an amazing app I'm signing up for it uh thank you so much for telling us about it you're in Elkanuk with their founder of the Kashmir app Thank you for listening to Badass Women's Out. You can hear us every Saturday on Talk Radio from 7pm for a full three hours, yes, three hours of opinion, debate and general setting the world to rights. We will be back after this. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So that's it. Now you know how to get rich slow. Some women who weren't getting rich but were changing the world were the 70s feminists and Tess Little's PhD on them shows how the trend in the US for political and social revolution changed how women in the UK saw themselves and their role in society and vice versa. And we are talking now about the rise of feminist protest in the 1960s and 70s and how it spread across the world. We are joined by Tess Little, author of The Octopus, um, who's talking to us about her, well, A, the book, The Octopus, which is out now, but also her PhD on mapping transatlantic networks of protest in Britain, France and the US. This is about the emergence of feminist activism. Tess, why feminist activism as a PhD subject? Hi, Harriet. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm just really fascinated by 1970s feminism um, and in particular the kind of radical women's liberation movement just because I found that the more I looked into the history of it, the more I found that it was just incredibly widespread, incredibly diverse, 
you know, all sorts of initiatives from um, very small discussion groups all the way to the establishment of refuges, rape crisis centers, the growth of women's publishing and writing and protest, as you say. It was just such a huge movement. What were some of the characteristics of the radical women's liberation movement that is it some of that classic stuff that we would think of the old school feminism of burning your bra not shaving your legs or what else is there within it um so i guess the way i would characterize the radical movement as opposed to the reformist sort of betty friedan movement would be to say that the radical movement really attempted to just completely upturn society it was about improving the position of women but doing that by just completely um you know having a revolution within wider society whereas reformist feminism was interested in uh, primarily like legislative change um and as you say um the radical movement's often characterized by the kind of bra burning um I think that, you know, that came from the uh, protest at the Miss America Beauty pageant where there, there was a um, freedom trash can where people <laughs> threw in their uh, hair curlers, issues of Cosmo, um, bras and all sorts of things. Um, although, I mean, really, that was just a publicity stunt. And I think in some ways it was a little bit too successful because <laughs> that is what we remember the movement as being. One of the things that I found really interesting about your the topic you're researching is that you wanted to look at about how these ideas for reshaping society travelled between the US, the UK and France. Um, And one of the things you found out that I didn't realise is the first women's refuges were actually founded in Chiswick in London. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, so the idea of refuges that really emerged from local need um, and the first women's refuge um, in Chiswick in West London just emerged really from um, what was originally going to be a general women's centre, you know, a place where women could come to get advice. And then they just realised that the problem of domestic abuse was incredibly widespread and that women were coming to them just looking for a place to stay, a place where they would be listened to. um, And eventually the entire house was just changed into a refuge. Um, The women weren't actually supposed to be sleeping there in the first place. They didn't have a licence from the council for that, but it just became incredibly clear that there was this desperate need for this service. Um, and then refuges were established all across the UK um, and then the idea just spread around the world Um, and in my case I'm looking at how it spread to France and the US. Were there any things that what are the things that we in the UK took from France and the US? Um, So from the US, one of the big things that travelled in the opposite direction, if we're thinking about services, um, was um, the establishment of rape crisis centres. So that was really an American idea. And it was almost kind of travelling in the inverse way to refuges um, from America um, to the UK. The first one here was established in London, then there was one in Edinburgh, and, you know, eventually um, all across the UK. Um, So, and then, I mean, thinking about French ideas, um, one was, um, I mean, this is kind of leaving out the UK, um, where abortion was already legal, but it was was, um, still criminalised in the US and France in the 1970s. And French feminists created this um, initiative where they had a manifesto of 343 women who in newspapers publicly declared that they had had abortions. And there were quite a lot of celebrities as well, um, people like Simone de Beauvoir but also famous actresses um, and they they wrote this declaration kind of almost to taunt the authorities you know they, yeah. they thought you know the authorities can't arrest 300 celebrities um, and then American feminists copied the um, initiative and in 1972 Ms. Mag- magazine published a list of 53 American women who were declaring that they had abortions.
It really reminds me, actually, of the Me Too movement and how it spread on social media, which was, again, that similar idea, which is if it's not one of us, if it's hundreds of us, if it's thousands of us, then people have to listen. Yeah, absolutely. And when I saw the Me Too movement spreading across social media a few years ago, I immediately thought of this manifesto of women, you know, publicly standing up. And it's such a brave thing to do. But when you do something like this collectively, there is strength in those numbers. Have you been able to interview any of the 1970s radical feminists? And if so, what have you learned from them? Yeah, I've um, interviewed women in all of the three countries that I study. Um, and I do these kind of life history interviews where, you know, it's like three or four hours long. We start with their upbringing, we go all the way to the present day. And they were involved in completely different forms of activism. Um, so one woman who I interviewed um, helped establish women's aid in the UK. Um, another was a French filmmaker who traveled to Iran to document the women's movement there. There were women who established feminist magazines and newspapers, bookshops, publishing houses, childcare services, healthcare services. Wow. I mean, as I said, it was just such a broad ranging movement. And I, I tried to interview women who were involved in, you know, completely different areas. Do you think there are any lessons that the activists of today can learn from these women from the 1970s? I mean, I think the thing that um, I've learned the most from studying this history is that one of the most enduring things are these kinds of services that were established and that are still running today. I mean, thinking of women's aid, for example. Um, and I think that kind of thing, you know, doing work within communities, improving people's day-to-day -day lives is so important. And there are a lot of organizations and activists who do that kind of feminist work nowadays. But I think that sometimes um, it's not really seen as a focus of modern feminism. And yeah. really, I think it's important to lend support to those kinds of services and establish new ones where they're needed. Also, it, is, it makes me think that actually it's the establishment of some of those services that changed then how we viewed the issue they were servicing. So in the 1970s, it, it wasn't seen, unfortunately, as a big deal to beat your wife. You know, that was sort of part of married life. And by establishing women's refuges, we're saying, actually, no, this is something that is so unacceptable that women have to leave to escape it that we have to provide shelter for them and so it's slightly then changing how we think about it because if it's something that just happens and we don't have to provide shelter for it, it becomes normalized whereas if it, we're saying actually this is something that needs a solution we're pointing out that it's a problem yeah, absolutely. I mean, providing the service and also doing, you know, important educational um, and advocating work, you know, it all goes hand in hand. And a lot of those organisations that were established in the 70s do both of those things nowadays. You know, they're an important voice um, for speaking out on the issue whilst providing services. And, you know, a lot of lessons were learned in the 1970s from running those services. I think that feminists were actually surprised by how widespread the issue was. Um, and then, you know, they developed their own understanding of violence based on um, their experience within these services it's you know just a kind of cycle of both of these things I mean I think it's a fascinating topic to be writing on and one of the things I love is that then this is your sort of academic hat on and then the flip of that is writing a murder mystery yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> I have two different hats <laughs> tell us about the octopus um, so, as you say, The Octopus is a murder mystery, um, or I, I should say, actually, it kind of begins as a classic murder mystery. Um, Elspeth Bryant-Bell is attending her ex-husband Richard's 50th birthday party. He's a British film director living in L.A., and she's expecting to find his house just bursting with guests. 
But when she gets there, she finds that there are only seven other guests and Richard's pet octopus, Persephone, is watching over them from her tank at the heart of the house. In the morning, Richard's found dead. Um, so it begins with that murder mystery set up. But as the novel unfolds, I think actually it kind of becomes something else. It's an exploration of memory, guilt, um, and really above all, it's an exploration of power and control. Is this your first book that you've written? Yeah, yes, it is. What was the process like of creating a fictional world as opposed to researching the real one? I mean, I absolutely love it. I um, I think a lot of debut novelists often write about experiences quite close to their own lived experiences. But for me, I was really interested in having a complete escape from my day-to-day life. Um, you know, I set this novel as far away from my own life as possible, setting it, you know, in Hollywood. Um, and I just love, I love how freeing it is to, you know, be able to start with any question you want and be able to go in any direction you want. Whereas, of course, with history, you start with your research question and you start with your historical material. And has any of your work in around feminism and activism, do you see any of that becoming a novel in the future? I'm not sure about it becoming a novel. I mean, I actually just think it's so important to write the history. So I'm thinking that I would quite like to write a kind of general popular history um, of the movement, one that's not just purely academic, but something to kind of improve our general understanding of the period. I mean, I think that would be great. Um, Tess, thank you so much for talking feminism and octopus, octopi with me. Uh, Tess Little there, author of The Octopus, talking about what she's learnt from the feminist activists of the 1970s. Finally today, we meet Mika Simmons, host of the Happy Vagina podcast, who shares why this season of the podcast had to feature men too. We like talking about women's health, women's bodies, and one woman who loves talking about it as much as we do is Mika Simmons. Hello, Mika. Harriet, thank you so much for such a fantastic introduction. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you for the work you're doing. Um, Your podcast, Happy Vagina, you came in and talked to us when you're doing series one. You're now on series two. For anyone who hasn't listened to it, what is it about? Vaginas. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, in all honesty, season one, I I lost my mum to um, a gynecological cancer and I started a charity called the Lady Garden Foundation. On from that, I developed a, a voice around shame and trying to get women to talk about reproduction and you know the sex the set their sex lives gynecology just really encouraging women to kind of get rid of any stigma and taboo and shame that they might have about that area of their body in order to save lives in a nutshell I kind of wanted women to be open enough that if there was something wrong they'd talk to someone about it and that's how the happy vagina podcast was born this season I have to tell you I've got some chaps coming on. <laughs> oh, what? how are they talking about happy vaginas? How, well, so I have been told in no uncertain terms by every single man that I know <laughs> that they came out of a vagina. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so they, they I, in, all, in all seriousness, I had a couple of male friends who asked if they could come on and got me thinking. And actually one of the things for me that has, really resonated over the last year was was about not feeding divisiveness. So while I feel everything that's going on for women at the moment is really exciting and it's a it's a, a time of change and freedom and power, 
it's really important that we don't leave the men behind. And I, and when my male friends are saying to me, we don't feel like we're included in this, I felt a little heartbroken. So I tried to think about ways that I could get them all involved. And so I've come up with, we've split the season between women and men. And the female guests, as ever, are just phenomenal. And we talk a lot about vaginas. We've already had Stephanie Yeboah last week. And Stephanie oh, great. Uh, is, 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 yeah, plus size got a book coming out in September about fat acceptance, amazing woman. We talked a lot about vaginas, vibrators, all sorts of things around pleasure. But we've also got some men coming on. We had Kenny Eaton-Jones, transgender period campaigner. Mm-hmm. I've got Charlie Condu coming on, who is a, 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 a gay man who has three-way partnered with their best friend and had a baby. They co-parent in a threesome. Wow. I know, which I think is great for any parents that might want to listen to that. And Absolutely. quite a lot of vagina takes chats. a village. Exactly. Even though, <laughs> even though Charlie doesn't have a vagina, we talk quite a lot about them. And last week, I had George Robinson from Sex Education come on, who is a young man who plays about to play Maeve's love interest, I believe, in Sex mm. Education. Last time, he was just trying to kind of like wangle his way into her life. <laughs> deeply dark sense of humour. George obviously had an accident and is in a wheelchair in real life and Isaac in the show is is on yeah. the on the trailer park with her. Anyway, amazing young man just talking about the impact that his early year sexual experiences had on the women around him. And I just feel that it's really important that we get to hear men's voices around all of this stuff. And one of the things that I always say is that I lost my mum, but my brother also lost her mum. So why shouldn't men be involved? It's really Did they have questions for you about it? Because I I think this is fascinating that we don't talk to men really about women and their bodies. And I we've talked about this before, you know, that we don't... Sex education in school is, is in no way about um, female sexual pleasure or actually how women's bodies work or, you know, how men's bodies work for that matter. And so we sort of at some point if you are a straight woman and a straight man you get together and you have sex and you hope that kind of both of you sort of know what's going on and then maybe you team up and you become a partnership and as you go through life things happen to you in terms of health and relationships and you sort of again hope that both of you kind of know what's going on but there's no actual education around it so I wonder just as you had questions for the guys did they have questions for you? No, they had no questions for me. They had so much interest to say. One of my favourite moments is George Robinson this week talking about, he said, I mean, the thing is, is that it shouldn't be taught by a biology teacher who's interested in photosynthesis. How's he going to know what a clitoris does? And I was just like, these these men don't need me to teach them anything. (laughs) They They didn't have questions for me. I, I do think it's interesting though, isn't it? Was it a different experience talking to a man about it? Did you feel differently talking about this very stuff with a man? So. Very, very, very. I thought, I thought it's a very, very different experience and quite nerve wracking, particularly the first couple that I recorded because I feel out of my depth. And I've just recorded one that isn't out yet with Nicholas Pinnock, who at the moment is child free. And I just felt this, I felt unqualified to ask him questions mm. about how it's been for him as a man not managing to have children left, which is m- my experience as a woman is that I have not, 
I, I'm child-free. Yeah. I've not managed to have children. It's probably partly choice. I'm not sure how much choice it is. I'm not mm. sure whether or not I will. And Nicholas is in the same position. And, and I felt, I noticed that in a way that I don't feel with women, yeah. I felt frightened to ask him. And that's kind of what I hear you're talking about, is that mm. men and women don't talk. I could talk to my girlfriends till I'm blue in the face about anything intimate, yeah. anything. But I still don't know how to talk to men. And I'm, and, and I'm excited that the Happy Vagina is starting to integrate that into its you know, in, into its USC, I think it's important. But it is really important because, I mean, I had a conversation with my boyfriend a few months ago about the menopause, which, you know, I don't think I'm going through right now, but who knows. Um, But, you know, he made some sort of off-the-cuff remark, which was, like, oh, you know, after about 45, all women go crazy. And I was like, yeah, well, do you know why? <laughs> do you know what's going on for women at about that age? Which sometimes mm. does make us, you know not the same people that we were before it's not actually anything going on with women's minds it's stuff going on with mm. their hormones and nobody had ever mentioned that to him before and this is what happens wow. when you try and use the phrase women go crazy with me uh, you then get a two-hour <laughs> lecture on why that isn't the case um mm. but there's you know it it just nobody had mentioned it to him and i well, find of, this astonishing yeah one of the beautiful moments in season one of a happy vagina actually was uh andrew mclean who has written yeah. a book on the menopause said that a man came and thanked her in the car park and i i think the more that women like us who mm. are brave enough to not just dismiss the slightly sarcastic remark i don't know if your partner was being sarcastic but no he was you know, hopefully we, being sarcastic otherwise we're in trouble but yeah but but we've got these sort of like gender we all do this i go yeah. oh, men just do men do that that's what yeah. men do that's what mm -hmm. that's the thing that men do they go into their caves and it's like at the moment i feel like we're in a period of revolution in terms yeah. of the individual which is why i wasn't prepared to do another season that felt divisive to me because mm -hmm. we've understood life by putting everybody into all of these different c compartments and Stephanie Yeboah talks about this she, you know she talks about intersectionality but even that in a certain way is going right I know who you are because I've labeled you as a a white woman heterosexual yeah. woman mm -hmm. child free all of these labels that I give you that means that I know exactly who you are rather than di digging underneath and giving every single individual human being an opportunity to be the expression of life that they came into the world as. Mm. And unless we start having these conversations cross-gender, you know, cross-race, cross-cultural, cross-class, yeah. and really asking people specific things about who they are and how they are, we'll continue to make generalizations what do you think you have learned from doing this podcast because you are if you don't mind me saying a bit of a vagina expert yeah but have you learned things from talking to your guests oh i've learned so much so much i think the episode this season i've learned most from is next week which is emily pine emily wrote a book called notes to self and she's currently working at the national maternity hospital as the writer in residence in ireland in dublin and from her i learned about making choices around being child free mm. i learned about you know saying no to ivf so emotional emotional learning emotional yeah. learning i haven't learned 
I don't think I've learned anything new about gynecology, but as you say, I am a vagina expert. So, but That's deep, a... deep, deep emotional learning, Harriet. Deep, as as I'm sure you do. You know, it's just yeah. it's just every single episode that I record, every single conversation I have, I go, oh, oh, okay, a penny drop just dropped about who I am as a woman and how I fit into the world. Well, I think that's the importance of talking about it, isn't it? Which is, you know, why I guess we do things we do, because this subject has been so taboo for so long that mm. if we don't talk about it, we, we're we missing out on a whole aspect of our humanity, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 100%. We could give us uh, one, just quickly, one favourite story that's coming up in this season of the happy vagina that we have to look out for or listen out for rather oh my favorite story <laughs> well i think it's on this week's episode with george robinson where he talks about his very first sexual experience where he uh encountered a, a, phys- a physical contact with a young woman before realizing that it was kind of happening and he was in a bit of shock and so he told his male friends and then his male friends told everyone and then the girl got made fun of and we just yeah and for me uh first of all George being brave enough to share that story on the the episode this week I think is phenomenal because I think we've all been there and if it didn't happen Mm -hmm. to us at school I think it happened to someone around us and I think that level of teasing and shaming that happens within the classroom at school is the starting point for why we then stop talking. And so for George to come on The Happy Vagina, to share that experience, yeah. to talk about the pain that he went through as a young man watching, he didn't mean to, yeah. he, he didn't start the teasing. He just was, he was like, oh gosh, this thing's just happened. And, and then I just, and I hope that every, because I do, you know, our listenership is still 94% women. Mm-hmm. And I hope that they get to listen to that story and it heals them yeah. and makes them understand that the men are going through just as difficult times around sex as we are. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Mika. It's such a great podcast. Happy Vagina. Do go check it out if you haven't already. Men or women, as we says there, actually... When we listen to each other and learn from each other, it's very healing. It is. We can let go of some of the gendered expectations, like women being crazy and other ones. That's all for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please do rate, review, subscribe. It helps other people find the podcast. It's really important. If you want to talk to me in between this week's show and next week's, you can find me on social media at Harriet Minter. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 